Okay. So who can remember what I spoke about last week? Blake. Blake. <laughs> what did I... <laughs> Anyone? Okay, Blake put his hand up. He's not answering, though. Oh, did you? The Lord's Day. It should be online. Yeah. I know you all listen to my sermons every week of... To be here, (laughs) in a nutshell, yeah. So I spoke last week about the Lord's Day and this thing of what it means to us as believers to gather together on the Lord's Day. And uh, uh, it was amazing, actually, that Rosie sang that song tonight. I I knew she was singing, she told me, but I didn't really think it through, that um, his body broken, his blood poured out. Because I want to preach this evening on the Lord's Supper and... uh, yeah, maybe it's a mini-series. Maybe next week I'll preach on the day of the Lord and not the Lord's day, which is two very different things. I hope you know that. But um, I, want to, I, want to, I want to speak a little bit about the Lord's Supper, and uh, I think it ties into what I spoke last week about, because there's a, there's a call to remembrance and to reverence. This thing of, firstly, gathering together as believers, and then today, as we celebrate communion, of gathering together around the body and the blood of Christ. Okay, so I'm going to preach into that a little bit this afternoon. So um, I'm going to be preaching out of a passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, it's a very well-known passage about the Lord's Supper. And uh, before I get to our passage, in, in 1 Corinthians 11:2, Paul says this to the church at Corinth. He says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding fast to the, to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. Now, that should ring some bells if you were listening last week because in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul says something very similar. He says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now, I want you to just take note of this thing of holding to the traditions because Paul do that. Because firstly, he says, I praise you. Right? In, in the beginning of the chapter, he says, I praise you. Because now when we get to our chapter, which is 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, he says something very different. And I wanted to give you context so you understand. He says, in the following instruction, I have no praise to offer. He's just praised them. Now he's going, in this thing, I have no praise to offer you. Now, I would imagine in that time that is quite a sharp rebuke, and Paul is saying to them, guys, you're getting it horribly wrong, I need to tell you why, and you need to correct this. Okay, so let's read our passage, and we'll understand why. It says, in the following instructions, I have no praise to offer, because your gatherings do more harm than good. Paul does not hold any punches. First of all, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. And indeed, there must be differences among you to show which of you are approved. Now then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without sharing his meal, while one remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have your own homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? This is not the kind of letter I would want to receive from Paul. I would want to receive a nice one like, 
Be anxious about nothing. In all things, yeah, no, the peace of God will heart your, God, your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Yes, Paul, you're amazing. This is not what Paul is doing in his letter because he needs to correct something. What can I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Each one must examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number have fallen asleep. Now, if we judged ourselves properly, we would not come under judgment. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you instructions about the remaining matters. It's quite a piece of scripture. And Paul is obviously quite sincere in what he's saying to the church and what, he, what he's seeing happen in the life of the church at this point, especially around this thing of the Lord's Supper. So, as we said, Paul starts this passage with quite a sharp review because what he, a rebuke, because what he's saying is there are factions, cliques, and divisions in the body of Christ. Now, I know it's very hard for us to believe that anything like that could ever happen in the church context. I know, shock horror, but it does from time to time. Never in this church. I know that. <laughs> and he's saying that your meetings, because of this, are causing more harm than good. So if someone from the outside comes into that meeting, sees these divisions, actually you're causing more harm than good. Now, that is something to consider. Paul raises this because earlier on in the letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says this to the church. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there is no division among you but that you will be perfectly united in mind and thought. So in 1 Corinthians 1, he's appealing to them, going, as a church, there should be no division. Then by the time he gets to this thing of the Lord's Supper, he's going, guys, there's division here in this thing. And he's addressing it. And he doesn't actually say what this division is. He just says that there's division, and he says, I believe it. And often I think when we think of church and we go, a church is divided, well, it looks something like this. There's that group who think that. And then there's that group and that group. And this would be a division. It's actually quite a good illustration. So there's these massive gaps between the people in the church. And you're going, I believe this. I don't believe that. I don't believe any of you. I'm doing my own thing. Yeah, that's right. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Already there's division. <laughs> 
And that's what it can look like. And sometimes we think, okay, there's these big things and divisions. Paul's addressing big divisions in the church. But I think, actually, often it's the small things in the church that can cause division amongst the brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, sometimes it's those hairline cracks that, if not addressed, get bigger and bigger and bigger until they become full-blown divisions. And uh, there's a famous scripture, which you'll all know, in Song of Solomon 2.15, it says this, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Now, we know the context of the Song of Solomon is about a relationship, a burgeoning and blossoming relationship between two people. And these people in this relationship are seeing that it's the small things that creep into the relationship that can spoil it. Okay, and it's the same thing, I would say, in the body and the life of a church. And those of you who had community on Wednesday, sorry, you're hearing my sermon for the second time, so enjoy it. (laughs) That often happens. If I come to your community on a Wednesday, you might hear what I'm saying on a Sunday. It's just a freebie. So the context of this passage is this, is this relationship, and they're going, it's these small little things that if left unaddressed will cause divisions in the church. And I, I have a crack in my wall at home, and when I lie in my bed and look directly at the, at the wall at the top of my door, there's a crack. That crack annoys me a lot, and I've tried to paint over it. A few times. (laughs) And in my mind, I'm going, if I sell the house, can I just paint over the crack? Because then no one will see it. Okay, that's a terrible thing to do. I will fix the crack. (laughs) But the thing is, I've I've painted over the crack before. And what happens? Eventually, the paint disappears, and the crack just comes through. And it just gets a little bit bigger. And actually, what I haven't done is I haven't solved the problem. I've just tried to paint over it. I've just tried to gloss over it and go... It's fine, it's not there for a few months, but then it starts coming back. And as a church and as a community, we should always be aware of those small little offenses that can take root and cause bitterness. Ah, There's a famous passage in Hebrews which says this, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Roots start really small, and then they grow, and they grow, and they grow, until you get to the point like me when you're gardening, and you literally can't pull the tree out of the ground. That's my worst. I'm not a good gardener. I just get really upset and start hitting it with a, with a spade or something. That's not what to do, okay. <laughs> but it happens so quickly that these small little things can cause little divisions and tears in our relationships. And let me give you an example. It can be something as simple as this. That person didn't let me share community on Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. And you go to your friend, you know, that person didn't let me share community on Wednesday. Or, ah, I should have, you know, why didn't they see what I did? Why didn't, you know, these little things that happen that can take root in our hearts. And before you know it, you're in a situation where Paul is addressing the church going, you, you're not taking the Lord's Supper rightly because there's divisions among you. 1 Peter 3.8 says this, and I love this passage. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, 
and a humble mind. And part of the joy of why we do communion tonight is that we, in taking communion, can find unity and restore unity in the life of the church. Now, I'm not saying that there is disunity in the life of the church, but I'm saying as a principle, when we, when we take the Lord's Supper, we need to be aware that we are taking it rightly. And Scripture then goes on to say, examine yourselves that you're doing this thing correctly. As we prepare to break bread together, my heart would be that we would mend any cracks, find unity of mind and heart, and in humility seek forgiveness or find repentance amongst one another. And then Paul goes on in this passage a little bit more. He says, now then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. Well, I think they thought that they were eating the Lord's Supper. But he's saying, in light of what I'm showing you and what I'm seeing, you're not actually eating the Lord's Supper. And this is why, another reason. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without sharing his meal. Teenagers? <laughs> While one remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have your own homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What can I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? No, I will not. Now, this passage might seem strange to some of us who've grown up in the church because we go, well, it's kind of hard to not share when you're doing communion because we just have a small cup and a cracker. How am I supposed to share that with everyone in the church? It's going to get a little bit awkward. Like, could I please have a little bit of your juice because mine's finished? And then they go, you know, you're going, no, this is wrong anyway. Okay, so, but he's not talking about that. He's talking about a proper meal. So in the early church in the first century, and I think up until the second, communion was part of a meal. So they would get together and have a meal together. And as part of that meal, they would break bread and do it in remembrance of Christ. And in Jude 1, 12, he actually talks about this thing. It's called a love feast or a agape feast, a agape meal. And uh, often it was either combined with or followed by what was called then the Eucharist or the communion. Um, and I think it's a tradition that's been a little bit lost. But um, the, the early Methodists did this, and I love this about what John Wesley did in his churches. He introduced this thing called the love feast, which was in the late 1800s. And they would get together, and then they would, and this is awkward for us with COVID, but they would take one cup, Fill it with juice, take one loaf of bread, and then pass the cup from each person to the next. Take a sip, pass it on, take the bread, break it, eat it. And it was a way of them sharing in the community and in the meal. And also it builds a bond, right? There's something about sharing one cup together, which is quite incredible. And I saw some pictures online of a, a Methodist agape meal cup. Now you get these special cups that they made. And the one cup had three handles on it. I couldn't figure out what it meant, but it looked pretty cool. Okay, so maybe it was something about the way they passed it around. But there was something in this thing of how they did it, of, of sharing together in this meal, which brought unity into the body of Christ. But this church that Paul is addressing in Corinth was abusing the feast. And if we look at this passage, and I'm going to say this because if you, as you read this passage, there are 
obvious things that they are getting wrong. Firstly, drunkenness. Paul's going, you're getting drunk. Are you supposed to be commemorating the blood and the body of Christ? And he's going, there's selfishness. Some of you are eating your meal and not worrying about anyone else and what they've got to eat. And he says there's despising and humiliating the poor. This is the early church. Despising and humiliating the poor. Disunity and division. Now those are the obvious ones that you get out of the passage. But there's more. Because I think actually what this church was doing was they were, they were neglecting or there was no sign of the fruits of the Spirit at all in their meetings. The, the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now imagine being part of a meal where none of those things are in play. It's going to be a little bit chaotic, maybe like a medieval feast where everyone's just out for their own thing and like there's a big table and everyone's just grabbing food, right? <laughs> so it's no wonder that Paul encourages the church to examine themselves before partaking of the body and the blood, to avoid partaking in an unworthy manner and so drink judgment upon themselves. That word for examine is dokemadzo, which means to test, examine, prove, and scrutinize. Scrutinize yourself. To see whether, it's to see whether a thing is genuine or not. Now, in this thing of the Lord's Supper and breaking bread together, personally, I find it a very holy thing. I remember going into a meeting not too long ago with someone and there'd been division in the church. There'd been something that happened in the life of the church where there needed to be reconciliation. And a whole bunch of people got together with a mediator and we sat down ready to find reconciliation. And we spoke for a while and there was forgiveness and there was repentance and it felt like it was, it was kind of in a good space. And we're like, okay, cool. And the person leading the meeting was like, ah, I think we found unity. This is amazing. And we were like, yes, we found unity. Thank you, Jesus. And then this person says, I think we should break bread together. At which point I was like, handbrake was like, okay, wait. <laughs> ah, I think I've professed unity with my mouth, but not with my heart. And I had to, I, at that point, I had a fear of the Lord come over me. Whereas, like, I cannot partake of this meal and not drink it and eat it unworthily. Now, I'm not saying that if I'd done that, I would have drunk judgment on myself necessarily, but there was something in me going, I can't do this because I think there's still things in my heart towards this person. And so we stopped. And then one person confessed something. And then another person confessed something. And actually, all we'd done in the previous one as good Christians is we'd taken the big thing of paint and try to paint over the crack. It's all good. We're fine. We're fine. We're fine. We're fine. Okay, prove that you're fine. Do, take the meal. Prove, prove that what you're doing, you're, you're taking the Lord's body and his blood and you're going, I receive his forgiveness for me. And if you receive his forgiveness, then you, then you forgive those around you. 
And that was the problem. I hadn't actually forgiven. <laughs> Me, an elder in the church. Shocking. <laughs> Not shocking. Very real. And I think in some, t- I think in some, I think just sometimes, I actually remember as a kid going to church with my grandmother, who wasn't a Christian at the time. We went to the Methodist church, funnily enough. And uh, they passed around the cups and the bread. And as a little kid, you're going, well, of course everyone should do it, because that's what you do in church. Like, come on, Gran. And she's like, she didn't take it. She was like, no, I can't do this. And it always stuck with me. I was like, why don't you do it? Like, just be part of the crowd, man. Come on, everyone's doing it. <laughs> but my grand knew that it wasn't for her. Because if she'd taken it, she wasn't actually commemorating what Christ had done for her. She wasn't a believer. My grand gave her life to Christ when she was 94. <laughs> then she could take communion with a clean conscience, going, thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness, for what you've done for me. I can receive that in a worthy manner. And I think we would do well to recall, there's a, there's a scripture in Hebrews 10, 29, which talks about, let us not trample on the Son of God or profane the blood of the covenant and so insult the Spirit of grace. Now that passage is talking about being consistent in sin, but I think there's something there of, of, a, of a holiness of what we do when we commemorate the blood and the body of Christ. How can we partake of the sacraments and honor the forgiveness and sacrifice of Jesus, but still honor or still harbor any type of animosity towards another? Just eating and not regarding is unworthy. And so as we read this passage, we, we see why Paul so strongly rebukes the Corinthian church. And maybe that was just for them and as a church we were in that place. But it's good to know why Paul has written this thing in context and what he is saying to the church. And actually it's a reminder to us that we should keep short accounts with one another. That 1 Corinthians 13, just after this, Paul says, love keeps no record of wrong. Now I've preached a few weddings And I've tried my best not to preach 1 Corinthians 13. But every single time the bride comes and goes, there's a passage in Scripture which says, (laughs) love is, love is patient. I'm like, yes, I know it very well. Actually, do you know what Paul is saying? He's saying, it's a rebuke to the church going, this is what love is and you're not doing it. Keep no record of wrong. And now we, we actually get to the crux of our, of our passage, which is it's just incredible. And Paul says this, and I'm, I'm wrapping up. I think I'm doing okay for time. For now I receive from the Lord what I pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. What a privilege that we get to do this as a church. 
And we spoke last week about gathering together on the Lord's Day as an act of remembrance and of worship. And here again, we see Jesus asking us to remember his death, which brings in the new covenant by his blood. Now, I don't know when last you've read in Jeremiah 31, 31, what, what he says about this new covenant. Because listen to the last line of what I'm about to read. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and it will be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their minds and inscribe it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will each man teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord. Because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And he ends it with this. For I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. <laughs> you see, as we, as we break bread and as we drink the cup, which reminds us of his blood, we are reminded that his blood pays the price for our sins. That his blood is the propitiation for our sins. That we who are believers can come before him and receive forgiveness. And, and even those who don't know him, tonight there's an opportunity and invitation to get to know him. And you come to him because he forgives your sin and he offers you eternal life. So, as I said, last week we spoke about meeting together. But actually I think in many ways the heart of meeting together is communion. It is not just meeting together to remember him, but to, to, as, a, as a physical sign to remember him and what he's done for us and the price that he's paid for our sins. Now, I don't think as a church we do this enough corporately, and I, 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 I really I want to do it more. But I think we can still do it corporately and individually. There's nothing stopping us in community groups on a Wednesday from breaking bread together. In fact, I would encourage community groups to, to break bread as often as you can. Because I think it, it promotes unity within the body of Christ. And it, it, it promotes a remembering and a bringing back to the very center of what the gospel is about. Christ's blood and his body. I wonder, Rosie, if you could come and play.